I'm stood at the Mutiny Memorial on Delhi Ridge. It's a beautiful structure made of red sandstone. The names of the British and Allied dead are inscribed on its memorial plaques. The battle it commemorates has been called one of the greatest feats in British military history. A small besieging force massively outnumbered and outgunned by the sepoys inside the city. Can this ragtag bunch of British soldiers and hastily raised regiments from the Punjab really retake the seat of the Mughal Empire? Can they finally gain a victory and begin to change the course of the rebellion? Today's story is a fascinating one filled with glory and honour, but also brutality and terror. Stick with me to find out more about the Siege of Delhi in 1857. After Delhi had fallen to the mutineers there in the middle of May 1857, it became the hub of the mutiny. It was here where a large proportion of those mutineers made their base of operations during that long hot summer. It was home to the Mughal Emperor, the last in his line, King Bahadur Shah II. And that's one of the reasons why it became this spiritual home of the mutiny. But the British were determined not to give up so easily. It was decided that Delhi must be retaken at all costs. But there weren't many forces to do so. Just a handful of regiments spread across northern India, massively outnumbered by the mutineers. There was also a very limited supply of experienced commanding officers. General Anson, the commander-in-chief, was up at Simla when the mutiny broke out. On the 14th of May, he left for Umbala, where he gathered together what forces he could find. There was the 9th Lancers, the 75th Stirlingshire Regiment of Foot, and the 1st and 2nd Bengal Europeans. The logistical challenges that Anson faced were enormous. In fact, it seemed very unlikely that he could achieve anything with his small force in the face of a huge growing number of mutineers. But, as good British officers do with the odds stacked against them, they still marched towards the enemy. They headed towards Delhi. Amapol Singh is a well-known historian, friend of the show, and he's written a book about the Siege of Delhi. And that book is called The Siege of Delhi, and it can be found in any good bookstore and also on Amazon. I'll also put a link in the show notes below. I wanted his opinion on why Delhi was so important to the British. Why did they want to recapture it? Delhi was the imperial capital of the Mughal Empire. Although it didn't have that strategic value, if you like, it had a, a huge political value and it had that sort of prestige and status as well. But there was another, even more practical reason. The British actually had three arsenals in North India. So one was in, in, in uh, Delhi. From that point of view, it was very important for either side. You know, if you look at the British or the, or, the, or the rebels, the sepoys, it was very important for either of them to retain control of that city. En route to Delhi, Anson's small force combined with what was left of the Meerut garrison, including the elite troops of the 60th Rifles, but soon the strain of leading this small force proved too much for General Anson and he died of cholera on the 27th of May. He was replaced by General Henry Barnard. He was a veteran of the Crimean War, but he was inexperienced in India. As the army continued their march towards Delhi, they looked for revenge wherever they could, hanging anybody they suspected of being a mutineer or of helping the mutineers. And it wasn't long until Barnard's small force, numbering around 3,000 men, fought its first major battle against the mutineers at a place called Badli Kiserai. It's a spot about six miles outside of Delhi. The mutineers were well dug in, blocking the route along the Grand Trunk Road. 
It's hard to say exactly how many mutineers there were. Some books claim as many as 30,000, which seems probably too many. Other books more realistically claim around 4,000. What we do know is that these Indian defenders outnumbered the British substantially and they had more and heavier caliber guns. If the British were to lose this battle, it's likely the war might be lost. The pressure was on. In India, since the time of Lord Clive, as anybody who follows this show will know, the British had always believed in taking the initiative and going on to the attack. And that's exactly what they did here against superior numbers. A brutal but successful bayonet charge by the 75th Regiment of Foot took the Indian guns and swept through the walled compound at the centre of the sepoy defence. Then, as the sepoys began to fall back, they were struck in the flank by the cavalry. Lieutenant Kendall Coghill of the 2nd Bengal Fusiliers wrote at the time, About 3,000 of the enemy's infantry, some cavalry and horse artillery bolted across towards our lines on the left and met the 60th Rifles and 2nd Fusiliers who gave them a few well-directed volleys and then ceased firing for, close in their rear, a wing of our 9th Lancers charged across, cut up a lot and captured two guns. It was then our turn for the sport. So the left brigade, ours, brought its left round, went through a large jungle or forest, killed all we found, went through a large village, rooted them out and potted them and then fired again. We then turned their guns on them, gave them a few rounds of grape into the retiring mass, and by half past nine, that position was ours. It was a very, uh, very important battle, simply because it was the, you know, the first major battle. Unfortunately for the mutineers, uh, they didn't put up a particularly good show, uh, and there were reasons for that. You know, lack of leadership. They had no real officers with command experience of command. In fact, the, the battle shouldn't really have even taken place if the, the mutineers had had some officer with, you know, military knowledge. Uh, they should have really uh, stopped the British from coming as close to Delhi as that, really. In fact, I've got a, um, a little snippet here of uh, John Lawrence sort of uh, summing up the battle, if you like. He said, the quote, the, the advance of our troops toward Delhi and the, the victory at Budliki Sarai near that city on the 8th June proved to the country that there was vitality in our cause and power on our side. And that pretty much sums it up, really. Um, you know, it was a very first battle between the two sides, and it showed the country that, you know, the British weren't dead. Um, you know, they had a chance of retaining the country. Despite their victory, Barnard knew they needed to push on and allowed his men just 30 minutes rest before continuing their advance. On the edge of Delhi is a ridge that overlooks the city. Here, another force of mutineers had positioned themselves, but they were quickly forced out by another swift British attack. Some of Barnard's men now begged him to attack the city immediately to seize the initiative and not to wait. He refused. Was that the right decision? There were a couple of options. There were existing tunnels underneath the city walls, uh, which were known to the British, and these could be used or simply, you know, a straightforward attack, you know, try and... Uh, blow up the, the city gates and then just simply enter. So there was a number of uh, advantages to that. The, you know, the British had the momentum at this stage anyway. The only disadvantage with that was that uh, Barnard didn't have enough troops. He only had about 1,800 infantrymen available at, at this time. You know, 1,800 men in, in a large city just isn't enough to, to, to really be able to um, do the job. So he decided to play safe, essentially, and uh, decided to simply wait for reinforcements which he knew would come because John Lawrence was promising him um, extra troops as soon as he could try and uh, as soon as he could manage to, 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 to send some. 
and so the city was to be besieged, there would be no immediate attack. The British began to dig in on Delhi Ridge, not far from the old cantonments. For those watching on YouTube, this is how the ridge looks today. So I'm looking down now towards where the Kashmir Gate is. This is the view the British besieging force would have had towards the old city. Okay, well, it was actually a, a very strong position, and I don't think the... The, uh, the mutineers realised, you know, the 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 advantage of of that position that they'd given away so cheaply. It's actually protected on three sides. So the only position, the only side that the uh, mutineers could attack from was the, you know, the south southwest through the um, the subsea Monday. The other thing was that it was very close to the city, so just outside the range of the the sepoy guns, but close enough to to be able to attack the city as well. And of course, the other advantage was that it was north of the city. So any supplies coming from the Punjab could be protected, essentially. So you could easily send reinforcements up and down uh, the road to the Punjab to, to protect those things coming in. And uh, before I forget, very important, the canal provided uh, fresh water for the uh, British troops as well. Uh, and that was very important during the long, hot summer, because there's no wells in the cantonments. Soon after the siege began, the British force began to get some reinforcements. One of the first units to arrive was the famous Corps of Guides. These hardy frontiersmen had marched 580 miles in around 22 days, in the heat of summer and during Ramadan, and most of them were Muslim. So that gives you an idea of how tough these fellows were. They, alongside the hardy Gurkhas, were to be heroes during this war. They were to really prove their worth. In fact, it's worth subscribing if you're interested to know more because the Gurkhas are the subject of the next episode in this series where I'm joined by historian Josh Proven to talk about how they came of age fighting at a place called Hindu Rao's House up on the ridge, another place I was able to visit recently. Meanwhile, inside the city, the mutineers had their own problems. Let's hear more. First of all, they weren't really particularly organised. You had um, sepoy regiments coming in, in sort of dribs and drabs, if you like, into Delhi. Each regiment effectively looked after its own supplies and ammunition. Um, and one of the things that British spies reported on from the city was that uh, there was very little actual uh, cooperation between the regiments. In fact, there was a lot of jealousy, sort of almost rivalry, if you like. You know, somebody, uh, one regiment who brought uh, supplies and... Uh, ammunition and guns in, effectively kept these guns to themselves and including the ammunition as well. But having said that, there was, morale was pretty high. I mean, these guys could see more and more mutinies happening, you know, up and down the country. There were a lot of mutineers sort of making their way to the city. So even though they weren't having too much joy, you know, in attacking the, the British position, there was this feeling that eventually they would do it uh, simply through, you know, sheer sheer weight of numbers, if you like. But as the siege dragged on and casualties began to grow, life in the British camp became almost unbearable. So there's all sorts of dead animals lying around for miles, casualties, you know, lying, uh, lying everywhere from both sides. And uh, cholera broke out in the, the British camp as well. So that made things even worse. But I think the, the biggest problem was probably the, you know, the actual conditions during summer. In fact, I'll, I'll give you a quote from one of the uh, British captains at the ridge, uh, which pretty much sums up the situation in the, in, the, in the British camp. Quote, the heat was insupportable. 
The thermometer under the shade of my tent marked 112 degrees Fahrenheit. And to add to our misery, there came upon us a plague of flies, the like of which I verily believe had not been on the earth since Moses in that manner brought down the wrath of God on the Egyptians. The air was tainted with corruption and the heat was intense. Can it then be wondered that pestilence increased daily in the camp, claiming its victims from every regiment, native as well as European? It was a strange sort of siege in a way. The besiegers pretty much besieged themselves, outnumbered and outgunned. Only good old-fashioned British pluck kept them in the fight. But that couldn't last forever. Even senior officers were falling like flies. General Barnard died of cholera on the 5th of July. His successor then almost immediately fell ill and handed over command to Archdale Wilson. He was an aging artillery officer who was seen by many of his men as a plodder, not cut out for the deadly work ahead. But the siege continued to grind onwards. Every day there was heavy fighting. The sepoys would come out of the city and attack the British strongpoints. Each regiment that came in would decide they wanted to prove themselves with an attack. As casualties mounted for the British, reinforcements were desperately needed. And there was one obvious place where the British could turn. It was a place they had not long fought themselves, but where the men were warriors and also really disliked those Hindu sepoys. The Punjab. It was very easy for the British to actually gain recruits from the Punjab, uh, not just from the, the Sikh community, but from the Hindus as well, and uh, especially from the, from the Muslims. You know, the Muslims in the west of Punjab, you know, right up to Peshawar and Kashmir and Banu provinces, had an absolute total dislike of the, the Hindu sepoys, if you like. Another warrior in the Punjab also now began to make his way to Delhi, the talismanic John Nicholson. He was a general in the East India Company Army, an Irishman and an old India hand. He's one of the most fascinating characters of British Indian history. A man lauded at the time and seen as a great hero, but now hated, I would say, by a lot of modern revisionist historians. William Dalrymple calls him an imperial psychopath. But what does Amapol think of the man? He did use capital punishment quite a lot. My personal view is that um, that sort of attitude was you know essential where he was situated so he was actually deputy for herbert edwards in uh, in banu province in uh, very close to peshawar you know as anyone knows in that area you know you need to keep control so he used capital punishment quite liberally uh, but that's what everybody did you know the the sikh uh, governors prior to you know the british taking over punjab did the same as well so yeah he does get a lot of bad press these days but uh, i don't think he was any different from, you know, a lot of people that went before him and um, people that came after him as well. But whatever you think of the rights and wrongs of the man, he soon proved himself in the field of battle with a great victory at Najafgarh on the 25th of August. Najafgarh is uh, a few miles to the west of uh, Delhi. The mutineers decided to try and stop the siege train. And uh, so they marched to the west of Delhi to try and bypass the, the British force at, at the ridge. Unfortunately for them, the British realised this, this move and uh, Nicholson was sent to, to actually intercept the, the sepoys. Both sides met at Najafgarh. Nicholson caught them by surprise, pretty much, and uh, the battle was a fairly short one and a very decisive one as well, actually. In fact, it was so decisive that, you know, he managed to capture the, the, the mutineers' baggage and pretty much all the guns as well. And after this date, you'll find that uh, a lot of the sepoys simply started deserting, sort of almost realising that the, the you know, uh, the battle was over. Morale was absolutely low at this point for them. 
So thanks to his excellent victory at Najafgar, the siege train, those heavy guns that were coming down from Punjab, were now able to reach Delhi. It was very important. Without the siege train at Delhi, uh, the British could not have recaptured Delhi. They just did not have enough heavy guns that, uh, you know, with them at that time to be able to, to make the breaches in the walls. The siege train roughly, roughly doubled the amount of guns that uh, the British had at, uh, at the ridge at that time. And so with their new guns and reinforcements streaming in, the scene was becoming set for a final showdown. But attacking the city was never going to be easy. Wilson, understandably in a way, was wary. If he threw everything at the assault and it failed, his own camp could fall, the war would be lost. Wilson could only count on about 8,000 men, you know, 8,000 fit men. Now, that may have been okay out in the field uh, against the mutineers, but attacking a city is, you know, is a difficult proposition. You have to get through the gates, get, get, get through the breaches, but once you're in the city, it's a very difficult situation. You know, each house effectively becomes a fortress, you know, and uh, anyone who's seen houses in India will know that it, they're very difficult to, to enter. You know, all houses have, or in those days used to have heavy wooden doors, you know, bars on the, uh, on the windows. So if you've got a few uh, mutineers on the roof, just shooting down at you, taking pot shots, it's very difficult to actually get to them. Uh, you need a gun to literally break into each house. So, very difficult situation. Um, what Wilson was worried about was that, um, you know, if the mutineers did have an organized defense, you know, his whole, uh, uh, the columns that would attack the city would be literally cut to ribbons on the first day. But despite Wilson's fears, the pressure from men like Nicholson wore him down and he finally decided to act. As anyone who knows about siege warfare will tell you, the key is to make a breach through the walls. And so the first thing Wilson did was move his guns closer to dig the batteries in and to start hammering the walls to try and make that breach, that gap in the wall, that would become what they call practicable, which means the infantry could then assault. On the 13th of September, a young engineer officer called Arthur Moffat Lang was ordered to go and inspect the breach and see if it was big enough. Showing balls of steel, he pretty much climbed onto the walls in daylight, right under the noses of the mutineers. It was practicable, he decided. The decision was made to attack. Soon thousands of desperate men would be throwing themselves at the walls in one of the most brutal and compelling battles of the Victorian era. And that, guys, is where we're going to leave it for today. In the next episode, I'm joined by Josh Proven to talk all about the Gurkhas during the siege and their incredible fight at Hindu Rao's house. And then, after that, we'll be walking in the footsteps of those amazing men, men like Arthur Moffat Lang, men like John Nicholson, as they storm the city in one of the most brutal and terrifying battles of the era. You don't want to miss that, guys. Be sure to subscribe, leave a like, leave a comment, and I'll see you soon.